0: You're listening to World Building for Masochists.
1: And we're wondering, why do we do this to ourselves?
0: Because your
2: pets have been working hard to entertain you in isolation, and the least you can do is come up with some good stories to tell them in return. They're an attentive audience. I'm Cass Morris.
0: I'm Rowena Miller. And
1: I'm Marcia Ryan Maresca. And this is episode 44, Old MacDonald Had a Dragon.
0: Well, welcome back, listeners, for yet another fun episode here at World Building for Masochists. Um, before we dive into our topic for this week, which is Old MacDonald and dragons and many other things besides, do we have any exciting announcements to share with our listening audience?
1: those of you out there who can nominate for the hugos the hugo nominations are open and we would love to remind you that we are eligible for best fan cast if you think our delightful musings are worthy of such a nomination we would be thrilled yes and on top of that we each did have work come out in 2020 Am I remembering Somehow, that correctly? Somehow,
2: <laughs>
0: yes, we did. Somehow it happened. God, yes. That was all last year, wasn't it? Yeah.
1: That was all last year.
0: Somehow. Wow. Yes. In the blob of time that, that was supposedly 2020, we all had books come out. Um, and Marshall completed a series and very, a very large and long and ambitious series um and i completed a much shorter series so um yes under consideration for our kind listeners
1: we all have potentials for best novel if you are, if you love us that much and love the work that we do that much that you want to nominate us for best novel best series and best fan cast we would love that so much
2: we would that would be delightful and uh in case you don't know, those nominations close on Friday, March nineteenth, and I will make sure that we have you know linkage and things up on Twitter, and I will probably drop it into the show notes for this episode as well. If you're eligible to nominate, you probably have an email about it, but just in case, we'll make sure you can find your way to those forms.
1: Yeah. What else? And uh, when this comes out, I will have a book out the velocity of revolution will finally come out and I've been thrilled with the pre buzz for it so far. Um, and hopefully all you beautiful, wonderful listeners, if you didn't already pre-order it, you're now racing to your Amazon to, to order it now. And I hope that you get as much out of it as I did in writing it. I know the process of writing it was utterly informed by, doing this podcast and the brilliant things that we discussed and learned by having brilliant amazing people on here to tell us things and you know also i want to thank the two of you for brilliant insightful ideas that percolated into the books so because and forcing me to to be a better world builder and hopefully make a better book because of it
0: this is what we're here for, to torture you as we torture <laughs> yes, ourselves. That is
2: the case. Yes. We're happy to do
0: it. Glad <laughs> glad to be here. And and we are here. So let's let's have an episode of this. I think we, we should. We shall. We shall. <laughs> um you know, in, in talking to Kate Elliott the other week, We did a bit of chatting about um, various animals that one might use to ride around and kind of realized, oh, you know, aside from like riding animals around and making them pull things, um, we should we should talk about animals in the culture and in the world that you create um, very early in our Uh, podcast history we did an episode on thinking about your flora and fauna but thinking about your domesticated animals is a little different because they're the animals that you are cohabitating with in one way or another so um i guess kind of jumping into the question are there any examples um that are just favorites of yours of domestic animals in fantasy fiction of one kind or another that you've run across
1: specific ones that i mean you know, now that I think of it, there there really ought to be like a fantasy novel that I that should just jump to mind where like somebody has a cat that's like just like that cat, but it's not coming to mind, amazingly enough. Like which you would think <laughs> given how writers are about their cats in general. <laughs> like if you There's one on my lap right now. I was <laughs> You can go up to any writer and just go, and how's your cat? And nine times out of ten, they're going to be like, let me tell you all about the cat.
2: Truth. <laughs> I I do like Gribo and you in the Discworld series. Both cats. Very different cats. But I like that they are figures who um, attend their witches and have very different personalities. And Grebo will fight anything because he's that kind of tomcat and you is a fluffy little white cat that doesn't need to fight anything because she has that much presence, and I quite enjoy that about both of them.
0: Yes, because cats have personalities, and we mustn't forget this about cats and about a lot of domestic animals, actually. Um, I I would not have have realized that about like livestocky type animals until I started keeping chickens and realizing like they do have, they're all very stupid, but they have little <laughs> personalities. I have the one who's stupider than the rest and she gets lost all the time and I have to, like, find her and kind of nudge her back to the rest of her, her little friends because she just wanders around clucking to herself. So they do. They have personalities.
1: A few weeks ago, my wife and I were walking through the neighborhood and there was just this random chicken just in the road. And we, you know, sort of, like, eyeline, like, oh, but, but why?" behind this house. And we went and knocked... <laughs> On the door of the house. I'm sorry,
0: Marshall, it was, it was in the middle of the road. Well, I mean... Not on one side or the other, it was in the process of crossing the road. Did you well, ask
2: it why? <laughs>
1: <laughs> when I say in the middle of the road, it was actually on the side of the road, but it was certainly, like, not a place where a chicken ought to be. <laughs> and we sort of figured out, like, it must belong to this house, and went and knocked on the door. We knocked on the door, the guy opened the door and just went, it's the chicken. <laughs> <laughs> He just knowingly. knew. Yeah. That chicken it gets out. I can't do anything about it.
0: My um I love this though cuz it's like it's it's becoming more normal in many areas of the US for this to this to be a thing. Like backyard chickens are a thing. And I find it this whole interesting subculture of people keeping chickens in, you know, n- not giant farm kind of situations and not out in the middle of of the country but in you know relatively populated areas and it it's interesting um i mean plenty of places in the world people keep livestock in in not large farm kind of quarters but in closer quarters um so i think it's you know it's an interesting question to ask in terms of world building like who keeps livestock? And do you, does everyone just have chickens or goats or tiny little wyverns in their backyard? Like, is this just a thing that people do? Um, and, and how, how does, how do you react when you find your neighbor's wyvern just wandering on the road? I don't know. Go up and knock on the door. Shoo them away. I would
2: love to take inspiration for that from my, my gentleman's neighborhood, which has peacocks and occasionally, I'll be on the phone with him and just hear an unholy shrieking, <laughs> and it's oh, like, oh, just God. the peacocks again. <laughs> so I would love something like that, like oh, just the wyvern again, just the neighbors, <laughs> just the neighbors wyvern, casual
1: peacocks, just, like just yes, that are just, just casual peacocks. peacocks, just plural.
2: Yes, I think there's at least <laughs> two of them. One yeah. might be a peahen. I'm not positive, but but they scream. Oh, they just do the same. Yes. Yeah, that's and cool. so imagine that's that, wrong. but with like magical animals, like that could set things on fire or accidentally open a <laughs> portal or make it start raining when they start streaking or during their mating season or something like that. Like you could have a lot of fun. <laughs> can
1: can you keep your blinker well, beast it's... out of my yard? You know that that's actually impossible, Jim. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, and then like all of the regulations that come up, right? Because. You know, you can only have three griffins within city limits. You need to, you know, (laughs) have a permit for that hell beast. Are you keeping it on a leash? It all comes back to, like, the bureaucracy on some level of how how is this allowed? Is this allowed? Are you going to allow this to happen in your community? Hellhound licensing, yeah. Yes. I mean, the peacocks, I feel like they shouldn't (laughs) be allowed. I think I would rather have my neighbors have (laughs) hellhounds than peacocks because they are... They are truly obnoxious creatures, but they're so pretty. <laughs> they are. They are very pretty. So, if you're coming up with, a...
1: <laughs> she says as she picks up a cat.
0: Say, <laughs> <laughs> so move the cat! Um, if you're coming up with with an animal culture kind of for for your second world, like how far back do you go? Do you think about when? people in your culture first domesticated animals and which ones they domesticated and how and why?
1: Yes, because (laughs) I am that, I mean, this will surprise no one, but I have a spreadsheet, (laughs) which will be linked in the show notes.
2: (laughs) He sure, he sure does. Wow. Look at that. He dropped that into our, into our (laughs) document. The number of times that Marshall has said, I have a spreadsheet. Should be a drinking game for this podcast. In the course of this podcast.
1: (laughs) Which is, which gives basically the rundown of all domesticated animals in the history of mankind and roughly where and when they were domesticated and from what wild creature and, and the whole shebang with that and why people domesticated them and what uses they get out of them. And, and Cass's face right now.
2: <laughs> I'm just, I'm scrolling through this list as I invite you to do, listeners, um, and tag yourselves with which of these things you just think sounds right to you. Because I got down to Society Finch and was like, that's interesting.
1: Think about that. Somebody saw that little bird and said, I'm going to catch that bird and then I'm going to keep it in a little house and I'm going to tame it. And
0: And this is... People didn't have TV, no. Marshall. They were But here's born, the thing. Is right? that this is the thing
2: about humans, is that we will try to befriend anything. <laughs> and there's lots of, of, you know, Tumblr posts and Twitter threads about this, about humans, like, imagining us in in sci-fi futures trying to befriend every alien we meet, whether it wants to be friends with us or not. But I think you can use that in a fantasy world as well. Like, what things have your humans tried to make friends of? <laughs> because they want to give them scritchies <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know it's, it is it's like I always you always think okay so we we go pragmatic in world building a lot right like so my culture is going to have goats because goats are good for for dairy production and they're good herd animals and they're also going to get fiber from them and then you're like well yes but but what do you give scritchies to like, do you also give scritches to the goats or do you have other animals that you're like, well, this was cute and it has fuzzy ears and I want to take it home with me because we seem to have both of these impulses as humans. Like we are not fully pragmatic creatures, especially about furry things with ears that we would like to give scritches to. And so, you know, it, it's, it's worth examining both sides of that. You have your, you know, livestock domesticated animals and your... It is cute and it lives with me and I give it scritchies, domesticated animals. And then there's a lot of crossover between the two. And having a balance of both, I think, is pretty important in terms of creating a vivid culture.
1: Well, I mean, with, like, dogs, it's probably the first thing we domesticated. It is, like, A, it's cute and we want to give it scritchies. But also, it will, it will bite people who try and steal from us. So that's handy, too. And... And those two things combined become like, oh, this this is a very useful thing to keep around. And that's why, like, if you go over the spreadsheet, so many of those animals, one of the uses listed will just be companionship because, you know, that's that's all you that that, it doesn't need to be deeper than that. Other than I like this furry thing to be near me at all times.
0: I'm I'm fascinated by um, all the different breeds of dogs and the fact that we have bred them for so many different purposes. Working dogs just fascinate me. I love watching um, shepherd dogs when they are are working. And if you've ever seen seen them live, it is absolutely amazing the speed and the precision that they're doing this. And and yet they are also very scritchworthy. They are they are very good boys. Thirteen out of ten on all counts. But just the the many things we have come up with to do with just one species of animal, with dogs. You have herding dogs and you have guardian dogs and you have, you know, your little terriers that are meant to, you know, go after small prey. And you have those dogs that were supposed to walk on the wheels to turn the spits in <laughs> in kitchens. Have you seen these images? I yes, what? From... Yes. I have not. Yes, yes. <laughs> they were these tiny, not t- tiny, but very small dogs that were bred to basically walk on a treadmill to keep a spit turning that's
1: fascinating that's amazing
2: (laughs) i feel like it's if you dangled the treat like just out of the dog's nose then yeah you could get that dog going forever that yeah
1: probably more efficient than like you'd have to get at least five hamster wheels to get the same amount of power
2: (laughs) exactly what i find super interesting is when animals transition out of working status into companion status and i feel like this happens with with lots of beasties um you know, not that many dogs really get used for their their bred purpose anymore. There's still some. There are some working dogs and, and herding dogs and things like that. But, like, my family's terriers are bred to kill things underground, but are mostly only useful now for good Instagram photos. Like, that's what they are. That's what they do. <laughs> or, like, I know people who've had ferrets, and I feel like ferrets were also a hunting animal at some point in time. Am I right about that? I think... Yeah, that that's what they were initially so. used yep. for. Send, send them down the skinny yeah. little hole because they're skinny. And and I don't think people who keep ferret out. Yeah, I don't think people who keep ferrets now keep them for that reason. And so I like that sort of as as our technology progresses, and especially I feel like our, our like food and pest control related technology, the animals we used to use for those purposes, we don't get rid of the animals, we just keep them around for scritchies now instead of for <laughs> whatever their original purpose was. I just think that's a neat thing that we do. We we got used
0: to these things. I also find it interesting that, like, even, even the animals that we consider useful, um, many of us, like, do not run out of, of kind of affection for the animal just because its use is done. I know plenty of people, for example, who um, have retired horses that, you know, a friend of mine takes in um, horses who are, Retired, they are no longer draft horses who were working. um, I think she's actually taken in a couple of Amish horses. I mean, these are working horses, but then they get too old, and it's like well, but you're still you're still cute, we keep you around, we take care of you in your retirement because that's you know we have a contract almost you, you know we we take care of you, you gave us work, so we are now going to care for you and i just I find that interesting my I had one hen who wouldn't lay, and it's like well. You're cute. I'll keep you around, I guess.
1: (laughs) When I was a kid, we had a dog that was a a beagle border collie mix, and you could see the border collie in her. When like my little baby cousins were around, because she would like herd them to safety. (laughs) Like when they were just wandering around the house, and she'd be like, "Nope, nope, you're stay in this area. This is where you belong."
2: I feel like that sort of that idea of of keeping the animal around even when it is past its quote unquote usefulness ties back to our conversation from a while back about aging and what resources does your society have to expend on something or someone that isn't actively producing do you have that leisure room are you willing to expend that even if it is a cost to you what room is
0: there for that as far as animals are concerned absolutely and i think there's you know you can you can build a lot of what the the not only kind of pressures and how pressures affect ethics within a culture, um, just by answering questions like that.
1: In Zulfa-Kate Snyder's Green Sky trilogy, part of it is there's two separate cultures on this world where one lives up in the trees and the other is trapped underground. And the ones trapped underground, resources are getting you know thinner and thinner. And part of what kicks off the plot is one of the girls who's a main character has basically a pet rabbit. And, you know, they've reached the point where they're like, you know, you've been allowed to keep this pet rabbit for a while, but we're running out of food. So it's time for your pet rabbit to become dinner. And she's like, "Mm, no, no, no. (laughs) And manages to like actually run away and actually escape being trapped underground just out of the sheer determination of like, no, I'm going to be, i'm not going to let them eat my rabbit and and that kicks off the whole the whole plot actually
2: (laughs) or like in um in the hunger Games series when katniss and her family end up in district 13 where there aren't animals really i mean there's not working or companion animals because they're underground they don't have the the space for it there's no pets there's no conception of that because the society is sort of so stark and so focused on survival but katniss smuggles her sister's cat In and like that's one of her conditions for, like, I'll do the things you want and I'll be your mocking jay, but my sister gets to keep her cat. (laughs) Like,
0: (laughs) that companion animal stays. That's the deal. I liked, Marshall, what you were talking about earlier about um, the family's border collie herding the cousins (laughs) because it makes me think of just how much of a little miniature ecosystem you kind of build with livestock sometimes that it's you know you domesticate this this critter whether it's you've got goats or sheep or um you know something that you make up for your worlds um that lives in a herd and it provides some kind of of benefit to the people herding it but then you have to have like you know maybe you get livestock guardian dogs who are guarding these these critters, or you have herding dogs, or you have herding cats that you have somehow trained in your world because they are more more tractable than they are in ours. I don't know, um, but there's this whole interplay there between the humans and different species of animal, all kind of working together, and that it like builds a lifestyle out of that. Then right, that kind of interacts between the environment and all those animals and the people um, that wouldn't exist if it wasn't for the livestock. Like it gets super just fascinated with, um, that there are still some nomadic herding people, um, in the world today and just, you know, the lifestyle of moving from place to place and the things they have to do to move their animals. And, um, it's just, it's interesting.
2: Well, it's interesting to think about how animals can be a resource, but also require resources to, to control and to, uh, and to raise. Yeah. And to produce and to you know make things out of can be other whole industries when you think about especially if you get into larger scale as we have in modern america which certainly has its downfalls but who then you know if you're using the livestock for food or for hides or for their bones like whose job is it to take those things apart and make them into the useful objects and and what where does that fit into the labor of the society yeah there's a lot it animals touch our lives in a lot more ways and i think we sort of consciously realize a lot of the time
1: as a modern society we so much of that is now invisible to the people who are not an active part of that and like you know we get i i remember you know being in elementary school in the 80s and when we're having our our unit on Native Americans, and they'd be like, and they'd use every part of the buffalo. And really, if you think about it, that is not a unique element to Native Americans. Like, every pre-industrial culture use every single thing that they could use and just it seems remarkable to us because we're used to like well i've eaten two-thirds of this pork chop but i'm full so i'm throwing it away and this, <laughs> the idea of like no i have to get every ounce of utility out of this animal once I, if i've killed it because this is this pig is the only pig i'm getting this year so therefore i need to you know make sure that I am using it absolutely to its fullest extent no matter what and there that's why we have pickled pig's feet as a thing <laughs> <laughs>
0: we're making head sheets <laughs> so right.
1: we are going to get every little bit out of this that we can because you have to and that's that right. is a big part of like the food functionality of of livestock in terms of how, how the use is getting done because you're not going to waste Anything, if you can figure it out. And then
0: recycling it back into whatever livestock, you know, permaculture you've kind of created that you, you know, you give your chickens and your pigs your kitchen scraps and you, you know, you compost your waste if you have that available. You put the waste on the fields and then the fields grow food and then you're giving scraps from the food. It's like this whole cyclical thing that happens. There was, it's one of the more famous organic farms now. I forget who was writing about it. Um, but they did this in winter. You often do deep bedding for animals where you insulate. By putting layers of, um, you know, straw or or other bedding material and you put it in thick. And as they poo on it, you just shovel more of the bedding in and it compresses down and basically composts over time. And then what they would do um, before, um, as they were doing this, they would toss nuts in there like chestnuts and then set the pigs in there to root through it and aerate this compost that had been created And so you basically have all winter long, your animals are creating your compost for you. And then the pigs aerate it for you in the spring. And then you've got compost to go put on the fields that you just made all winter. It's like, well, that is very clever. The
1: history of humanity is 10,000 years of us coming up with these little clever things. And then a hundred years of us forgetting most of them.
0: (laughs) Yes. One of the questions... Especially that I always think of for for cultures that primarily, you know, not primarily have animals as companions like we do, but primarily have livestock is where do you draw the line between do we have companion animals or do we just have livestock? Like, do you let animals in the house or is that gross? Or is
2: it it normal to let your livestock in the house because otherwise they freeze to death or you freeze to death
0: or someone's going to... So you look in the house, but only this section of the house. Or what do you, you know, what kind of of social mores do you build up around where are animals allowed and not allowed? Are dogs allowed on the couch?
1: Like, do the chickens just wander in? And is that okay? Or is that, you know, at what level of domesticity is there, no, we have to form a harder boundary between where the animals come and where we're not? No, we're just going to bring the chickens inside because because it's cold and we only have one building to live in. So.
0: <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's interesting too, because um like, th- there were even times and places that buildings were built like for this purpose, like the whole idea of what the Bethlehem stable probably actually looked like, that it was not a separate building, but that buildings were built with, you have a main area of the house that people live in. And I guess that the word for that is basically the same word as in. It just means like upper room. Mm-hmm. And then you have the stable, which is kind of below, like a below ground kind of um, affair. And that's where the animals go so that it's not necessarily a separate building. It's the idea is you that's that's part of the same structure. And um long long story short yeah jesus could say he was born in a barn but but it
1: might not have been quite the snub that the story presents itself as because we're looking at it in a 20th century Ooh, interesting that's interesting
0: that our culture has the idea of a, a stable being this separate place that is away from the people when in fact it was most likely part of the same the same house
1: like the all my rooms are filled up but you can stay in the stable might have been just like standard operating procedure for a lot of places
0: (laughs)
2: back
1: then and not right (laughs) that that is fascinating
2: it speaks to the overlap of domestic animal with domestic space and and how each one is defined and controlled and i was sort of thinking about how like the The question of are animals allowed in the house? Are they allowed in the domestic space? Might have a lot to do with like, how easy is it to clean your floors? How easy is it to clean Mm -hmm. your fabric? Whether it's because of the type of fabric or the type of cleaning material or laundry that you have available to you. Like, animals make messes. And I, there's probably some kind of correlation between like, either our floors are just dirt, so it doesn't really matter. Or we have rushes and those are pretty easy to, to swish out. But if you've got lots of fancy carpets, but no good way of cleaning them easily and, and affordably, then it's going to be like, no, we're not, we're not, they they don't come in this area because the the expense outweighs something else. I don't, I don't know. I just, I feel like there's probably something there.
1: And you have to ask yourself, like, what is, what are the lines of which animals can do what? Because I think most people, you know, in the here and now, don't give a second thought about sleeping with their dog or their cats in the bed with them, but would probably bulk at the idea of, say, the baby goats. I can't, even though that's an obvious example to me, that doesn't necessarily seem like, like, what is the line between the dog and the goat in terms of like, no, that's definitely not a house animal, whereas that definitely that that is fine as a house animal. That's, a, that's an interesting question. And I think, yeah, and, and how much of that is just my Western bias of like, no, dogs and cats are pets, but goats less though. So. Like how many in in a different culture might the idea of like, no, the goat, of course the goats all get in the bed with me. That's just what they do. Like that might be perfectly normal.
0: <laughs> and I mean, I think that you brought up rabbits. Rabbits are a good example of one that really crosses the line because they're pets, but they are still raised as food yeah. in many parts of this country. And so, you know, that's both. You know, it's both the cuddly thing that lives in your house and also a thing that lives in a hutch out in the yard and that you don't get too attached to. And I think that you can do interesting things, you know, within some limits of of logic and fantasy of saying, you know, that trend where pot-bellied pigs were kind of a cool house pet for a while. Yeah. Like, that could be your dog. That could be your version of companion animal dog in your society if you wanted to. You know, dogs are an abnormal pet, but pot-bellied pigs, that's where it's at. Keeping in mind that I think you can house train a pot-bellied pig, whereas I'm not sure that a chicken would ever be housebroken. They just poo everywhere.
1: And does that create a cultural line of like, no, this is a companion animal, thus eating its meat is completely beyond the pale. Because we do think like we think that here and in other cultures, dogs and cats are acceptable food animals, whereas we find that we're like, yeah, we're we instinctively almost find that appalling. But how much of that is just because culturally we've been trained to think that specifically, and in building other cultures for your worlds, you that's that's a great choose versus presume of breaking of. Examining those choices and whether or not you want to make household goats just be like, no, we're, we're never going to eat a goat. Are you kidding me? Like that's, the goat's part of the family.
2: I feel like that can be a good way to work the animals into the story as well. Like if we're thinking about, you know, ways of integrating them into the plot, into the characters You don't necessarily... you know, Your whole story isn't necessarily going to be about old MacDonald and his dragon. But brief things like that can fill in a lot of the information that you're building about the animal culture in your world. Simple things like, what sorts of things are they eating versus what sorts of things are just sort of around? What do you see in the street? And what pulls the carts? Without having to really, you know, do the deep explanation for the reader.
1: And you can also, like, build that into infrastructure of how like buildings are built like does the house that your characters live in is there a stable in the back even if they don't they don't have horses might it be that you know the space for horses to exist is a given even if they don't necessarily have the horses
0: yeah use of space is kind of huge right because if you're going to have animals they have to be somewhere so is it just normal to have space created in certain, either in homes or in public spaces or whatever for them? Um, like keeping um, like keeping pigeons, like the old um, practice of keeping pigeons for communication. Like, well, you have to have those roosts built for them in permanent locations because they're going to keep going back to the same place. So that becomes like a... A thing. I think that um, Sam Hawk in um, City of Lies does that, that they have like municipal pigeon <laughs> roosts that they have set up.
1: And so then it's like an architectural common thing to have flat roofs that you can easily go up to because that's where the pigeons are.
0: Or you have like a little aviary tower is just part of a nicer home. Yeah. You have your aviary tower. This is the tower. pigeon window. This is... This one's got right. the lattice
2: work, and that's just what it is. It's just that everyone puts that in the northeast corner of their house. Duh. That's,
1: <laughs> of course. Because that's where the pigeons go. I mean, the bees, that go in a completely different part of the house. Absolutely and, you
0: know. different. Do
1: people keep bees <laughs> in your culture? Like, that's, yes. we we need more bees, I think.
0: <laughs> we do need more bees. I love beekeeping. I I it's it's so interesting the whole like the whole process like if you're gonna if you're gonna put beekeeping in your books that is one thing to research because I did not realize how complex the process of beekeeping. Oh was. yeah,
1: I have a friend who's and it's fascinating. Has gotten into it and then went 150 percent into like that's her life now. It's she's she does bees like that's
0: <laughs> bees. Have have you ever heard of the um the old practice of telling the bees?
1: I have heard of it, but I don't know what it means. But I, like, I've heard that phrase.
0: Weird things that people come up with and attach to their their animal culture. Um, It was tradition, I think, from who knows how long, well into the 19th century, that when something major happened in your family, you went to tell the bees first, especially if somebody died. If you didn't go and tell the bees, the bees would leave. Or would stop wow. producing honey. So like if, the, if, you know, if the father of the household died, you had to go out and tell the bees, you know, and there like little rhymes for it and everything um, that, you know, the, the master has died. You're now going to, to be, you know, making honey for the mistress or whatever. They would even, I think, sometimes decorate, Um, not decorate, that's the wrong word, like put up morning crepe on the beehives and things like that. But it was, it was bad news if you didn't tell the bees before you spread the news to everyone else. That's
1: fascinating. I love that. Yeah. I mean, but just also like the culture of that or the domestication of things that like bees or silkworms or something like that, which seems like the idea that somebody went okay you see those things over there they've got honey and while yes they've also got those nasty little stingers i think we can work with this <laughs> 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 and we're gonna figure out how
0: <laughs> well in that line between like domestication being it curls up on your lap and goes to sleep and domestication being we have learned how to work with this. Yeah. Like the, the the bee, the bee does not consider you any kind of companion or master of its life, but still, <laughs> we have learned to work with it. It's it's
1: less it's domestication in the sense of like agreed upon mutual respect. We like you know we'll. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you go through that that list that that we're going to be linking to the to the show notes you there's a lot of things that you probably never thought of in terms of like somebody like somebody 8000 years ago was like uh, i'm going to figure this out
2: it's all people like my gentleman who cannot see an animal without wanting to hug it like it's just iterations of him throughout <laughs> history responsible for 80% of domestication i'm positive
1: and you have to think about like all the things that were not domesticated, that surely there is a long history of failed attempts. Like there's surely, surely thousands of of well-meaning fools over the course of history who tried to domesticate spiders to get spider silk.
0: <laughs>
2: oh, well, this got out of control quickly. Oh, <laughs>
0: Or, or what's, what's the deal with, with zebras? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah zebras will yeah. will. yeah. Yeah. That despite being visually and other anatomically similar to horses. Just won't. Are. Won't. Just won't. Just, just are won't. not. Not going to happen. Not happening. And just the, like the whole long process yeah. of domestication for so many animals that we domesticated at least convinced horses to pull things before they before we ever got to the point of riding on them because a lot of you know herbivores had that instinct of nothing on my back no never because that's where predators will drop onto them so the idea of something on your back means buck get it off right now off like freak out mode so we spent a lot of time with with horses as as draft animals or as as um pulling chariots and things like that before we kind of figured out the whole, how are we going to talk them into letting us ride them situation. Well,
2: and we still have lots of people who try to domesticate things they shouldn't. They're the people that try to keep, you know, <laughs> tigers in a 600-foot apartment. And it's like, that's not a good idea. That thing is going to eat you someday. And so that's still... And we've all seen those news stories.
0: Yeah, they do. they do.
2: It actually happens. <laughs> and so that still is something that we try to do. I was really interested I read something not too long ago about cheetahs and why people have come like closer to domesticating cheetahs than other big cats and it's because they're actually from completely wildly different branches of the feline tree cheetahs aren't a big cat technically they're they're not panthera they are completely other I forget there are completely the
1: others genus it's it's like two
2: steps above that i can't remember my order a different order yeah like they're they're wildly different animals and they just have some qualities that make them a little easier and and we haven't quite always gotten there but you see those pictures from like the 1920s when people did put cheetahs on leashes and walked them around and they're friendlier towards photographers and things like that out in the wild too they're less skittish of humans in a lot of ways um or they're easier to get habituated humans and i i think that's interesting like where where genetics plays a role in the whole concept
1: there's also you have to be aware of the distinction between an animal that can be tamed and an animal that is domesticated because it is the the radical difference of whether or not you can continue to breed them in your domestic space and thus and control their breeding in the way you want to as opposed to you can get a baby cheetah and raise it tame because you raise it as a baby but you're not going to get you know generations of cheetahs over and over again like i remember reading one of the reasons why elephants were never successfully domesticated even though they can be tamed is partly because like their i think their pregnancy cycle is like two to two and a half years So, so it made it that like trying to breed traits into elephants became just a losing proposition that you could never really successfully do that because, and that's why we, we never successfully domesticated elephants. And there was the brilliant idea in the 1910s or 1920s, many, many of our listeners have probably heard of this. And if you haven't there was a there was an idea to bring hippos to the american south and just let them become like and try and like have them be semi-tame in the american south and just and have that be raised as a meat animal this was voted on in congress and like didn't pass by like a vote or something like that like like we came really really close to the probably bad idea of just bringing a bunch of hippos into into louisiana and just letting them loose and seeing and hopefully then using them as a meat animal now
0: well and and part of that was the whole idea right that that was wasted space that swamp wasn't being used for anything it wasn't useful so we have to Do something with it, which kind of comes back to, again, how are you know, how do you use your space with animals like you can make poor choices, too.
1: So the idea of like, let's just get a lot of hippos and just let them and introduce them to the environment. And then we'll have this great meat source in the hippos. And if you're wondering, what would a world like that look like? Guess (laughs) what, friends? You can pick up Sarah Gailey's two Uh, two hippoverse books (laughs) that are basically westerns but on hippos. Um, I forget what the two individual books are called. Like there was two novellas that they then
2: yeah, River of Teeth, I think was River of of Teeth. They're collected as American Hippo.
1: Then they're collected as American Hippo. So, Sarah Gailey, go get that brilliant stuff. We should get Sarah on this show at some (laughs) at some point.
0: You know, it's interesting too. I was thinking about there are the animals that we try to domesticate and and okay. fail, and the ones that you know since time immemorial we've had around like dogs and goats, um, and then there's the ones that seem to have like fallen out of favor. And I was thinking about how squirrels were a popular, not terribly popular, but popular enough pet in the 18th century. Really? <laughs> yes, you get these paintings of people with squirrels on little little collars and little like, metal chain leashes and all kinds of squirrels. There are flying squirrels. There are little red squirrels and gray squirrels. And, and I, I just, you wonder how this happened. Were they, I'm guessing it was a situation that they were taming individual baby squirrels and not it having an been. actual domesticated animal because it did not seem to last. It seems to have fallen out of favor. Cause- at some point
1: i mean you can demand you rabbits were domesticated and you can have rabbits as pets because rabbits are fundamentally willing to be chill if there's not a reason for them not to be (laughs) squirrels have no chill
0: (laughs) no no and and it's like you have these like very like calm and like demure portraits of these women and silk gowns and it's all very like you know beautiful pastoral setting and they've got this squirrel like sitting on a table next to them and i'm like that squirrel wasn't sitting still there's absolutely no way that 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 squirrel was photoshopped in that later like (laughs) yeah there's that squirrel was like all up in their business like you know
1: i almost wonder if like those were pet rats and then at some point somebody was like you know rats no Let's, let's, let's dress this rat up a little bit and make it into a squirrel. And so that became like, it became sort of the thing that's like, it's a rat, but we're going to pretend it's a squirrel because that would just look cooler.
0: That would be so much, so much more interesting. No, it's, it's nuts. (laughs) nuts, (laughs) (sighs) Anyway. But yeah, you know, you can also have the, the failed experiments that that caught on for a while and then then we decided nope. But if you're
1: doing, you know, your wild magical secondary worlds, do you have wild magical animals that can also be domesticated creatures that, you know, do you do you have your pet wyvern that just, you know, hangs out in the house and and stokes the Stokes the oven when you need a little bit of extra flame. (laughs) And and are they domesticated enough that they can flame on command and not flame when you don't want them to?
0: Not like burp and burn down the neighborhood. Yeah, I think that one of the interesting things with magical animals is that often we make them um, in fantasy very intelligent. And so part of the question is, like, do you is there a line where an animal can no longer be um, a domesticated animal because it's simply too it's it's a person so you think, now. <laughs> it's yeah. like a person now and i think that you know there there are some good some good works that have dealt with that but i think that when you're deciding what kind of magical animals you have it's kind of a question to grapple with do you have the you know traditional very intelligent dragon that's more like a person or do you actually just have a big lizard That's sort of the right. central like what do you go with that's sort
2: of the central thesis of Naomi Novik's Temeraire series is like they start off the dragons being treated as Horses that maybe talk a little bit, but they're not really treated differently. And and, in England, they're stabled and and all that. They're very much use animals. And then, sort of over the course of the books, it's like, oh wait, they're actually smart and sapient, and maybe we shouldn't be treating them like this. And we see how they're treated in other cultures. And it's it really explores that exact issue in in really interesting ways.
1: I remember in the Narnia books, I think it's in the last battle. There's sort of this throwaway thing of like the difference between eating a talking deer and a regular old normal deer like eating a deer <laughs> like that would be fine but then like when they hear the guy telling the story of it, like yeah when we caught this deer it was saying please know I have a family ha ha and then they're like oh god we did it but like the yeah, idea that that is was, was... such a radical distinction like is is fascinating in the like we've opened up a whole can of worms of icky questions of like what does sapience and communication mean in terms of like how animals are used in your world
0: yeah and i think that the, the narnia books do another fun thing with that one with um the horse and his boy because the horse is a talking horse who's been living, he was captured. And so he's like kind of living abroad and he makes it very clear that the only reason that these kids are allowed to ride him is because they're both refugees and they are in disguise. And that, you know, once we get over the mountain, like this is not happening anymore. <laughs> like we are, this is, this is not how you treat a talking animal, um, but needs must. And so I'm going to teach you to ride in the best way possible, which is a horse telling you what needs to happen.
1: Though no, on a, sillier side of the similar idea i'm thinking in the restaurant at the end of the universe there's the whole bit with the cow that is bred to want to be eaten so the cow comes out to the table and is like hello can i interest you in something from my sides (laughs) and arthur is horrified but the cow is like no this is this is my dream this is what i want i am here to be eaten please (laughs)
0: I think that was that's literally things.
2: the line.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: that takes like, that takes world building from Ascus to a whole different level. That's
0: yep. That's yep.
2: Whoo.
1: Well, I think <laughs> it was partly. I think Adams was inspired by like the idea of in you know in so many restaurants when you order lobster they like you know either you go to the tank or they have the tank on wheels and bring it to you and they're like pick which lobster you're about to consume (laughs) and like we don't do that for other animals but
0: (laughs) no i'm uncomfortable having this kind of power (laughs) (laughs) but also
1: what if like the cow has been specially bred that that's what it wants that's its destiny that it's that it's craving and yeah and we'll tell you that and that just makes it seem even weirder (laughs)
2: I feel like a So one thing oh, say, I feel like a way I've seen a lot of authors get around the issue of like dragon sapiens and things like that is to have domesticated versions that are like teacup dragons or like teacup griffins. And I feel like I've seen this in a few different series, um, over the past decade or so. And that makes some sense. Like that one's gonna do less damage for one thing. Like that one might singe your skirt, but it's not gonna burn your whole house down. But it also If we think of it as something that's been miniaturized and isn't exactly the same species, then it's more like, you know, a human having a capuchin monkey or something as a pet, as opposed to something that has its own autonomy.
1: (laughs) I mean, that's like when you see things with like baby tigers and people are petting the baby tigers and the tiger is like trying to eat their hand, but like can't because it doesn't. (laughs) But it's not like it's not trying (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> well, like, Or like tarantulas, which are, is this right? Or am I buying into a myth about this? Like tarantulas are poisonous, but their mouths aren't actually big enough to, to bite humans. I
1: thought that was, I thought that was daddy long. Oh,
2: maybe so. it is. I've always heard about daddy lung. They're maybe. In fact, I might be like, incredibly,
1: the incredibly venomous, but it's the way that their mouth is structured. It's impossible for them to actually bite a human or something like that. I, I have, might, I might be confusing that. Might be a, that. Yeah. That might be apocryphal, It May also be a myth.
0: Who knows? But it could be a thing
2: in a fantasy world that this animal is hugely venomous, but...
0: (laughs) Lucky you. One of the things we talked about earlier um, with with the hippos kind of also made me think about when you're going to have domesticated animals, whether they are companions or working animals, like, what kind of ecological responsibility do you have your culture take on or be aware of? and one of one of the examples that i always think of because this poor guy had no idea what he was doing but when the british were um settling the south pacific and they put lighthouses on a lot of these little small islands this this lighthouse keeper moved in and he moved in with his cat and one day the cat brought a bird that i believe was a flightless bird and he's like i've never seen one of these before so he like loads it up and he sends it back To the, you know, like, academy in England to identify it. And by the time that it gets there, and then they get word back to him that, yes, he has discovered an entirely new species. This is a new species of bird that apparently only exists on this island. His cat has killed every single one on the island. And it's like, oops, oops. well, little uh, frisky strikes again here. Um, But, you know, what kind of ecological responsibility is your culture aware? Clearly, this guy was not aware at all that he was introducing a apex predator to a species that had no defense against
1: it. I remember there was something else when, when the British colonized Australia, and I can't remember all the details, but they, like, brought their cats or something like that, which then ate, like, some kind of frog or something like that. Like, I... My, my memory of what I'm talking about, is incredibly vague, but it was something like, but whatever they did, they ate, the thing they brought ate the thing that ate some insect. And without that thing eating the insect, then that insect was wildly out of control. And they were like, how did this happen? How did we end up with plagues of locusts or something? It's like, well, because your cats ate the frogs that normally eat the locusts. So therefore, <laughs> nothing is eating the locusts. Oops. That 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 is like a a idea in fantasy. I don't think anybody's really touched into of the idea of you know whoops we created ecological disaster.
0: Oh, <laughs> there there is there's I think it was it was a sci-fi. It wasn't a fantasy, but it was um, I believe it was the Many Colored Land. It's an old one, um, but they they find these these they're settling a new planet or whatever, and there's this giant monster that lives in the water it's very dangerous and so they hunt it and they kill it and then discover that oh oops the giant monster is the adult version of the little fish that they've been catching and now all the little fish because there's no giant version to catch it and eat it are all growing up into monsters and so they've created this like not only very very um unbalanced local ecology but it's not good for them either And I don't remember how that turned out, what they did about a really long time ago. Then they all died. (laughs) Yeah, and but... (laughs) And
1: I think you can also just have a lot of fun by creating whatever weird magical creature you want to create. Though, I think that there's also, there's a, there's definitely a danger when you're just like, I'm just going to create a weird magical creature, and then that magical creature is just like, the same thing like it's it's a horse but just better and you know if that's the case why not just make it a horse like what are you what are you doing to justify it being this separate creature with a separate name because then you might be just falling to the trap of just like i have wacky things with fantasy names there's actually a a whole trope called that if you've ever read the the turkey city lexicon which is definitely a thing every sci-fi fantasy writer should at least if you haven't glanced at it you should glance it because it is it does it is basically just a list of all the terrible tropes that sci-fi writers tend to fall into (laughs) but one of them is calling a rabbit a smearp which is just like this is a thing it's a rabbit like no matter what like It's basically just a rabbit. And by giving it a wacky name, you've just made, like, you've made the on-ramping for your reader just that much harder for no real reason. Like, I'm thinking in the Honor Harrington books, there's the whole thing with tree cats, which are these little alien beasties with six legs, but they're kind of cuddly and furry. So they're cats. They're not really cats, but (laughs) but yet, yes, they're
2: cats. (laughs) Something I feel like I, I see with that like an an adjacent, not necessarily even problem, but convention with that is like, well, this is a Tlouvian horse. And it's like, add my fantasy name to the regular name, which both tells the reader, it's a horse, (laughs) but it's a different horse. It might look, you know, it's got a blue mane or something, as opposed to the horses you know. And uh, that's sort of a way of like skating around. That Star issue. Trek
1: does that a lot, so much. So much. Lot. <laughs> it's probably their favorite trick. I'm just like
2: <laughs> Cardassian wolves, things like yeah, that. Yeah, which is
1: especially funny when, if say, the character saying these things is not human and is like, then like doing this sort of like weird third party thing of like, like it's you know it's an Andorian whale, but like you're neither human nor Andorian, so why are you? You know, making that... <laughs> I just noticed it because, like, those are the sort of things that comes out of Jadzia Dax's mouth a lot on Deep Space Nine. And so, it is just especially weird because it seems like Jadzia is far more human pop culture literate than she necessarily should be. Or, or more that there is no trill pop culture, which is a whole different bagworms that we're just not gonna get into but maybe it's just
2: the <laughs> universal translator doing that work for everyone like
1: it could be like it could be like they're they're just calling it by their proper name and the translator is just like it's it's a Cardassian bowl fine
2: whatever <laughs> <laughs> it's as much information as your brain needs it's fine but that does sort of make us think about like we talked a lot about the utility of real world our real world animals and what different utilities could there be for? magical animals for what other purposes might you be raising something we talked a bit about in the in the witches episode a while back about familiars and um the purpose that they can serve but then there's also the idea of we need these parts these animal parts from our magical livestock not for eating but for spellcraft and, and things like that
1: although it just occurred to me you have the hydra which has the magical ability: you cut off its head, and two more grow back. Does that just give you a never-ending source of Hydra brains for meals,
2: <laughs> or or like Hydra teeth for anything else? Like, is that a yeah. is that sustainable agriculture? Is there yeah, sustainable because, agriculture of yeah, Hydras? I think
0: maybe.
1: <laughs> like,
0: it must be. Like,
1: you just cut off their head, two more grow back, and now you have a head that you can, you know, you that you have like fifteen different
0: uses I mean, for. <laughs> I mean, head cheese would get pretty old. If, like all you were eating was hydro, <laughs> hydro brain cheese <sweet laughs> and head cheese. But I mean, and does it become? You do what you have to do. Does it
1: become so domesticated, and so normalized that there's just like these shops on the highway that are just selling us trinkets like hydro skull <laughs> <laughs> drinks? Because you know we have a billion of these. <laughs> we just have to you know do something. <laughs>
2: That could like exponentialize the problem of an invasive species. Like, especially if they weren't like giant hydras. If they're like garter snake sized, but they just happen to grow lots of heads, like, oh, that could be really interesting.
1: (laughs) Well, that's like the thing, like the big, like magical beastie animals, like that tend to be monsters and tend to be like apex predator kind of things. There tend to be like the hydra or the Nemean lion. Like, there's not like. And and then somebody just goes and kills it. And that's the end of that.
0: (laughs) Well, yeah. And when you think about some of the nastier beasties, it's like there has to be a reason to domesticate this thing or have it in our lives that outweighs the hassle of having to domesticate a griffin. That does not sound like fun. I mean, you've got a whole lot of different sharp things that could be coming at you. Is it worth it? You know? So you kind of have this like what what exactly is your purpose for having this thing around that it's not just a wild creature that is part of, you know, the fauna of of your your world?
1: You gotta break the wyvern for riding, so you're gonna have to put on our asbestos <laughs> coat because you're gonna get singed. <laughs> just accept that it's gonna happen.
0: Well then there's like probably, you know, whole whole subcultures of the people who this is their job, right? Like this is their job to raise you know the griffins for the magical feathers for the truth spells and and they know how to deal with them they're they're pretty cranky most of the time but you know they know the tricks and and the people who you know raise the unicorns and know how to avoid getting gored to death and and you have to have all these specialized skill sets that go along with your your magical creature I can totally overlap
2: with fashion too. Like the dragon keepers all shave their heads because that's just an unnecessary risk (laughs) and their eyebrows, no eyebrows on any of them. And it's, it's a whole look. Well, they, they started with eyebrows,
0: but (laughs) they don't last. You just embrace
1: (laughs) the fact that they're going to get burned off. So you might as well just, you know,
0: right. Or, or you get them tattooed on. Oh, I like that. And so the dragon keepers have the most fantastic eyebrows because they're just tattooed on. I like that a lot. I feel like we have have covered the gamut of of domesticated creatures. I don't know do we, um, do we need to return to Marshall's life. list? Companion. Do we need to <laughs> And <laughs>
1: I mean there's so many things on there that like the great thing about that list uh, not to pat myself on the back is how many things are on there. I mean cuz you know I it's not like I just, you know, I did the research like that like I found that information and copied it into a handy spreadsheet for for my purposes and now for yours to, to save you the time, but you know, the amount of things that are on there that you'd be like, I never would have thought of that, but, (laughs) but yet, Hey, that's, that is a thing that somebody, you know, was like, I am going to domesticate this skunk. (laughs) Surely that will, that's good. This is going, this is going to go well for me.
0: You know, my dad had a pet skunk when he was a kid. It only sprayed once, it was him, of course, but you know, so speaking of animals that you would never expect to to have um, domesticated, I am curious for our our regions that we have in our world that we're building, what is a a domesticated animal that you think would fit in well there, that you think people that would be very common for the people in your little corner of our world to keep. otters my people and why cats well well why? my whole
2: river culture what do they do it, with it goes them? along with my with my river culture and i think you know otters have those little hands they actually like you know they can they're
1: the most adorable little
0: things i
2: know and so i think that i think maybe that this started out as a useful animal and they like trained them to like move things maybe like small objects like pushing them like down mm-hmm corridors or tunnels or something i don't know i gotta think about this more but they've been they've been petified over time and now there's well, there's fancy there's fancy house otters there's maybe,
0: maybe the otters like dive for Ooh, things yeah there we like, go. Dive yeah. and like get things like like sea urchins and and clams and things and so maybe they, they yeah train i like that. to dive for That's seafood good.
1: and they're so cute yes they're like they're so whenever cute. like somebody on twitter is like i'm having a bad day send me send me cute animal gifts otter oh, nice. is my go-to <laughs> like because they are so cute um
2: they hold hands while they yeah. <laughs> so, they're they so sweet so yes i think i think that's what what i'm giving my people otters i, I, house I otters. love it fancy house otters i love it
1: oh in grass for some reason i just imagine them having like really fancy fish ponds like koi ponds Ooh. that is sort of like your status symbol of like like, look at my fancy fish pond where I have nine kinds of fish that, you know, and I have to keep this one separate from all the others because he would just eat them. <laughs>
2: Plus, you have your snails. So I love Plus,
1: it. they have the snails, which they yes, have domesticated.
0: Yes. Well, and like by the fish pond is a fantastic party spot. Too. Yeah. Like you just go hang out by the fish ponds and have a drink and watch the fish like do their thing.
1: And that, you know, that becomes the way to get your you know intended paramour to you know would you like to go for a walk by the fish pond you know oh yes <laughs> everyone that's, that's the
0: big pickup line in Greece. yes
1: <laughs> everyone knows exactly what that means but you know you
0: <laughs> i like it so i think in um in in my little archipelago i'll not leer um it, i think i designed the the houses as being um Typically, kind of like one story, but very open and kind of sprawly because it was a hotter climate. Um, but I was thinking that it's also sort of um, a lot of it seems like sort of a, a jungly, heavily um, wooded area. So you'd probably have a bit of a pest problem, like lizards and mice and things, just like getting into your house all the time. So I think I am going to give my people um, kind of it's it's a house cat but it's like a like a ocelot kind of of kitty only a little bit smaller and domesticated and and a very a very um agile hunter so it it patrols the house to keep to keep the the vermin down um but also will curl up on your bed and and sleep and and be very cute <laughs>
2: And I think we can hear yours purring.
0: <laughs> yeah, I was oh, say. really?
2: <laughs> <laughs> As
1: if on cue, there, there was yep. purring.
0: Yep, he's curled up on my lap in happy, happy kitty contentment.
2: So you've got like house cats from a different branch of the tree, slightly. I like yes, that. Yes, I like that. One of one of my favorite animals is the um, the the African killing machine, the the cat that has the the black was it? The, the black-footed cat that has the huh? the little, te- the little, little tiny teeny one. Ones. It's like house cat size, and it has the ones, highest yeah. kill rate love of love like it. any mammal. Yes, yes.
0: <laughs> yes. yes.
2: <laughs> so those, but domesticated, sort of.
0: Love it. Yes. That, exactly. But more adorable. <laughs> <laughs> we have adorableified it.
2: Perfection.
0: <laughs> I am, I'm quite pleased with all of our our animals for our our world. I'm sorry. I'm so distracted by this kitten. You <laughs> gotta see this guy. Oh my goodness. He, like, just flopped. I just, I can't even.
2: Well, listeners. At this
1: point, the kitten has flopped into Ro- Rowena's lap. It's true. It's deeply adorable.
2: And I'm sure mine is hungry somewhere. So, having fulfilled this conversation about domesticated animals, go hug yours. We implore you. Give them scritchies. From us.
1: Hi, you. Thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. Our next episode will go up on March 3rd, and we'll be talking about building espionage and diplomacy into your worlds. We hope you join us for that one. We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please do take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the Internet, or leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions or you just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter as at WorldBuildCasts and our email is worldbuildcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. We also have a Discord chat room linked in the About the Show page of our website. If you want to come and chat with us and other fans of the podcast, we'd love for you to share the worlds you're making and help us all build until it hurts.